The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you please open your Bibles to our next text on parenting, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, I love this passage, the Shema, that every family would have learned and God's old covenant people would have been repeated in worship, would have been repeated at the table, would have been repeated at the Passover, would have been repeated in the home. It's a glorious text and it contains some wonderful insights which I would like to kind of pull out and give to you in uh, 10 observations on biblical parenting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 10 observations on biblical parenting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is not my purpose tonight, well, let me uh, make one other comment. I do want to commend to you, we've done this once before, the walk through the Bible. Those of you who haven't done it, it can be a good refresher course for you. Uh, I mean, that have done it, it'd be a good refresher. Those of you who haven't done it, you'll find it very enjoyable. We're going to get the Old Testament done this year uh, on a Lord's Day, during the, starting at the uh, all-adult uh, convocation in the morning. Uh, during the Sunday school hour and then in the afternoon, uh, we'll have a, we'll start and go from four to six thirty, uh, and, um, and get that accomplished. And we've got the number one expert on it coming, Phil Tuttle. Uh, he is really, really, uh, excellent at this presentation. So looking forward to that. Maybe you might be inviting others. And I do want to also, if you don't mind, take this moment to ask you to seriously consider coming to investigate our evangelism training ministry on, um, that's going to be taking place on midweek by coming to that meal that has been opened up to which you are invited and to kind of investigate. Don't consider that a commitment meal, but do consider that as an invitation and investigation meal concerning the training on how to share the gospel that we will be doing uh, this year uh, during the midweek uh, gatherings on Wednesday night. It will include training and OJT, on-the-job training. Uh, it'll really be, I think, very, very helpful and encouraging to you. Uh, one other point I would like to mention before we dive into this text is um, is I've really been praying about where to go as we finish this <clears throat> series, Foundations of the Faith from the Sanctities of the Book of Genesis. We've looked at the sanctity of God, the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of divine revelation, sanctity of life, sanctity of work. Uh, we have looked at... Um, um, what God has laid out in his word that are these foundational pillars of the faith that really need to be understood and embraced in a culture that is sifting and shifting so rapidly. And one of them, of course, is the sanctity of marriage. Another is the sanctity of family. We looked at the biblical understanding of singleness to the glory of God and how that season of life is embraced uh, with confidence and contentment in the Lord. And then also we've, um, uh, we've looked at this matter of parenting in the context of the sanctity of family. So I'm going to look at this text and, um, and then one more that I want to share with you that I think is really important because I don't think I'm going to get there tonight. If I do, um, uh, then um, I'll have to make an adjustment. But if I don't, we've got one more uh, text on this matter of parenting. Well, then what this fall? And um, while I was away on my study sabbatical, I really prayed about the fall series and what God might have us to do and where God might have us go. And so um, the Lord just kept laying on my heart that to prepare us for this day and that which is moving toward the eschaton, the coming of Christ, 
there is one wonderful book that everyone slips over, but it is, it is absolutely crucial and essential. Like if I was to say, I want to study on the end times, what book do you think I would mention immediately? What would be the, what would be the book everybody goes to when they want to study about the coming of Christ? Hint, hint, the apocalypse. What do you think they might suggest we study? Revelation. Well, there are two Old Testament books that are keys to understanding the book of Revelation, two in particular. One is the book of Daniel, and you're probably aware of that because we've uh, made that point uh, before. But another one is the book of Zechariah and the night visions of Zechariah. Um, unfortunately, while it is um, marvelously uh, insightful for understanding the book of Revelation, it is many times not even handled in your Bible. So let me ask you, not how many times have you been in a sermon in which Zechariah might have been referenced, but have you ever been in a series of sermons on the book of Zechariah? If so, would you raise your hand? Brian, you haven't been in a series on Zechariah. Out of all these people, not one. Not a series on Zechariah. I'd say, no, no, no. You know, you know, you're, when you were studying acting in Hollywood, it kind of stuck with you, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just stuck with you. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that's interesting. I figured there would at least be a couple. Um, and, uh, but we believe all scripture is profitable, right? So what about the book of Zechariah? What would it be telling us? So why don't you be inviting your friends? We will start the Sunday night after Labor Day, after the Sunday before, uh, uh, Labor Day week. And we'll be starting our study of Zechariah then. Now, if you would go with me to Deuteronomy 6 and let's, uh, recalibrate back into the issue of parenting. And I want you to start with me in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them dil diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house, and on your gates. This is a glorious text of scripture that has been read in your hearing the word of God. And I want to take a few minutes and walk you through it. And then I want to distill for you uh, by um, just a distillation statement of 10 elements that would affect biblical parenting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So he says this beginning, Hear, O Israel. Now, what is Israel? Israel is a nation. Israel hasn't always been a nation. Israel, in the providence of God and in the redemptive work of God, was a, uh, began with a man that God called out of the land of the Chaldees, and then he sent him. He told him to leave his home, leave his family, and go to a land that I promised to give to you and to your seed. Now, he didn't even have a seed at the time that is a child, but he was told to rise up and with his wife make his way to this land of promise. And God said, he said, you just keep going, I'll tell you when to stop. And so he goes, and he goes into an area uh, and then comes into that area and begins to dwell in that place. And then we follow this patriarch Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah. 
and uh, in terms of God's covenant mercies and establishing with them the Abrahamic covenant in which he promises to give them land, to give them a seed, and to bless them and bless all those that bless him. Not only will he bless the nations through Abraham, and kings will come from him, and he will be a blessing to nations, but also he will bless the nations that bless Abraham and his seed. And then, of course, comes his son Isaac, and then Jacob, and God's, and he does, and he, of course, engages in parenting from the promise of God, I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. I will remember my covenant made with you from generation to generation. And then he establishes the covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, he causes Abraham to go into a deep sleep and a dream comes to him in which the Lord God has commanded the sacrifices to be cut in half and he cuts the covenant. We, a covenant is a divine deal. That is a covenant that God gives. It's a divine deal. And I'm not meaning to be sacrilegious, but it comes with cutting. It comes with the cutting, dare I say it, the cutting of the deal. But here's the point. We, as his covenant people, receive the blessings while God himself takes the cursings for our sin. And that is pictured in this covenant moment in Genesis 15. As the sacrifices are separated, then the smoking uh, the smoking lamp and the cloud come through the sacrifice to Abraham. In the covenants of men, the Hittite covenants, for instance, and others that they would have been familiar with, it is the covenant receivers that come to the covenant maker, but not so in the divine covenant. It is the covenant giver that comes to seal the covenant for the covenant recipients. Thus, what you see is a covenantal baby step declaring and revealing what will come to fruition from the covenant of Abraham to a covenant with Moses, to a covenant with David, and then the fulfillment in the new covenant with a true mediator who is that sacrifice, and that is Christ himself. And then as he establishes them, he, give, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And then he tells him the terror that he is feeling is that his, that his family will become a nation. And God, in making it a nation, will take them into a nation that will, that it, where God will use that nation to multiply them, to mature them, and to mobilize them. And then after 430 years, he will send another mediator who will bring them out and deliver them as they make their exodus from the slavery that that nation has imposed upon them. And, of course, that's the anticipation of what we see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so that promise has been made to Abraham, and it was made, and then we see Isaac and, and how God continues his covenant, and then to Jacob, and then to uh, the, the sons of Jacob and the twelve tribes, and then the famine, and then how they sell Joseph, who rises up as, uh, dare we say, vice president of, um, of Egypt. He's second in command, and God gives him great favor with Pharaoh. And as he is there in command, now his brothers come to him because of the famine, and they tremble when they realize this is the one that they left for dead, but yet he assures them that he has no revenge, of, that he has planned for them at all. On the contrary, he declares his confidence in a sovereign God. 
Joseph, who was sold into uh, slavery, um, was faithful to the Lord as a slave, sold into Potiphar's house, was faithful to the Lord even in the, even in the false accusations and convictions of, um, of uh, Potiphar's wife. And then as he is then put into a prison, uh, he, is a, he is faithful in the prison. And even those when he is abandoned by those who he ministers to, he continues to honor the Lord. And then God in his plan raises him up into this place in the very house of Pharaoh. That's why he says to his brothers, he says to them clearly, uh, do not fear. What you meant for evil, he doesn't dodge the issue. They meant it for evil. What they did was sinful, but there's a sovereign God. And as one preacher says, that draws straight lines with crooked sticks. That what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring about this present blessing to you. And so they come into Egypt where they are cared for and then rises up a Pharaoh that does not know Joseph. And out of his fear, he he employs genocidal policies to control this population that he is fearful of in their midst. And as he brings those judgments, then God raises up Moses to bring them out through, um, through the ten plagues. The Passover covenant meal is established that points to Christ, the Lamb of God. Then they are brought through a baptism as they are taken through the Red Sea. Um, of course, you will notice it's uh, Pharaoh's army that gets immersed, not the Israelites. And then as they come through on dry land uh, and uh, declared this as being baptized into Moses, now they go into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And all of these marvelous lessons of God's grace are being taught throughout those opening books in the book of Exodus. Well, where you pick up here... In Deuteronomy chapter 6, now Deuteronomos, Deutero, in Hebrew that means two. Maybe from this morning you remember nomos means what? Well, one person remembers from this morning. Nomos means law, the second giving of the law. This is the second giving. Remember he had thrown the tablets down. Now he gives the law a second time, and as from the mountain the law comes down, now Moses delivers a sermon. And that's what Deuteronomy is, is the sermon of giving glory to God for his grace manifested to his covenant people. And it covers the chapters, basically the chapters of Deuteronomy. He arrives at chapter 6. Does anyone here happen to know what is in chapter 5? We do believe in verbal plenary inspiration. It's important when we study a text, we know what comes before the text. Because God's not only inspired the words of verbal of the text, plenary, he has, this, he has inspired the order. What precedes, I see some of you sneaking a look at Deuteronomy 5, I see you. And so what has he given in Deuteronomy 5? He has given the law. So here is that second giving of the law that has now come to them from God through Moses. Now we're ready to understand the text. Would you look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Now the Lord is God, but what he's emphasizing here is the covenant relationship that this people have with God. He is our God. Do not slip past that. Here is not only a statement of fact that the Lord, that the Lord is God, but it is also a statement of fact that they have an, a, a, um, a covenantal relationship with Him. Unlike any other nation in all of history, there has only been one nation which has enjoyed a covenanted relationship with God at the command and provisions of God, and that is Israel, the nation through which he would bring the seed of the Redeemer himself. 
that it, this Redeemer would come through this people and that Redeemer that comes through this nation will bless, remember the Abrahamic covenant, will bless all the nations. And that one is, of course, Christ himself. And so this, this covenanted nation that God has established is called to listen to the word of God. Hear, O Israel, a nation, Israel. They were not a nation when they came into Egypt. They are now in the wilderness past the Red Sea on their way for a 40-year journey in the wilderness, uh, ultimately, on the way to the promised land, and in that they are now a nation. Here are a people that were not a nation that has become a nation through which God will accomplish his promises through the promised seed. And that seed will then proclaim God's covenant of grace to all the nations and make a royal nation from all the nations from every tribe and nation. So as this nation is formed under the sovereign hand of God in the midst of their suffering, so God is going to bring a redeemer who will suffer for his people from every tribe and nation and will establish a nation unto himself, a royal nation, a nation of priests that will be established. Here Israel, it can now be given this statement, the Lord our God. Then then comes what we call proper theology. That is, theological focus upon who God is. The Lord is one. Now, if you do notes in your Bible, you might write there, E-H, and put a dot under the H, A-D. E-H-A-D. There are actually two Hebrew words for the word one that uh, in the Bible. There is one, that means one. But there is another Hebrew word in the vocabulary of biblical Hebrew, and that word that's translated in your Bible one, and rightly so, is a word that means one with multiplicity. And that's the word echad. The H put a dot under it because you say it don't, it's not, it's not a, we don't want to do an Alabama tr- uh, uh, translation here, Ehad. It's not Ehad, okay? It's Echad. It is you, in other words, when you say this word, nobody should stand within about two feet of you. Uh, so this is not COVID-19 friendly uh, word. Echad, you, it sprays out. It comes from the, uh, from a guttural sound in the mouth. And this is the very word that is used, for instance, in the book of Numbers when the spies come out. And as they come out, they've got a pole between them. And they talk about the milk and the honey and the fruit that is in the promised land with glowing terms and what they're going to bring out. Those spies come back. And they've got on the pole a, here's the translation, a grape. Well, you could translate it because it's an echad grape. And it's so heavy, it bends the pole. Now, let me tell you, it is not a 500-pound grape. It is referencing a grape in cluster. It's called a grape, but it's referring to the multiplicity of a cluster of grapes. That's the word that's used to describe God. Now, that word does not teach us the doctrine of the Trinity, one God who dwells in three persons. But it does accommodate the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not the Hebrew one for one singular, but the Hebrew word for one with multiplicity. It doesn't, uh, just like we don't know how many grapes were in that cluster that called a grape, But um, here it doesn't tell us that the Lord our God is one in three persons. 
But it does say one, and it's the word that accommodates multiplicity. You see this same issue in what I quoted this morning in the sermon, that we are baptized into the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names, not plural. It's not three gods acting as one. But the name, singular, one God in three persons. So here in the Shema, here is the declaration, here is a, here, if you're, if you are a Presbyterian by conviction and hopefully with more and more passion in your life, uh, then you can uh, now like this next word. Here in the Old Testament is a confession. Now, I meet people that tell me, well, in my church, we don't have confessions. Um, we, um, um, our, no, we have, I, I said, you don't know? They said, no creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible. I said, well, guess what? You've got a confession. Now, I don't know what you mean by Christ. And I don't even know what you mean by Bible. Some people by Bible have got about 70 books. And some people by Bible have got 67. I don't know what you mean by it. No, a confession is not something that supersedes the Scripture. It's a distillation of essential truth from the Scripture that you need to know. And here is a confession for this nation, just like we have numerous confessions of the early church that are embedded in the New Testament. Here is there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, he owns us, we own him. This one who has delivered us out of bondage. It is this God, the Lord our God, who is one. It is the Lord. Sometimes meaning, and it has different ways of showing up in your Bible to let you know in your translation. Sometimes it means the Lord Yahweh. Sometimes it means the Lord Adonai. And one, uh, uh, Yahweh means the God who is, and then the Lord who is. Adonai means the Lord who is sovereign. But this God who is ours, and we are his, he is the Lord, and he is one. He exists as one, and there is the word of one for multiplicity. And as the scripture unfolds, we realize that the Lord our God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we invent a word that's not in the Bible to theologically express this confessionally. It's the word trinity, the triunity of the one God in the three persons. So here is this glorious uh, statement that is given confessionally. The Lord thy God is one. Now what should you do? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Question. In that text right there, does that sound familiar to you? That statement I just read, does that sound familiar to you? Hello? Yeah, sounds familiar, right? It sounds familiar because it is a summation of what? The Ten Commandments with a focus on the first tablet. You remember when they asked Jesus, of the Ten Commandments, Jesus, which is the greatest? And what does he do? He goes back to Deuteronomy. He goes back to Exodus, which sums up the two tablets. That you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. And how do you, and then teaching you with the second tablet, how you love those made in his image. And how you love your neighbor, the image bearers of God. As you have been taught by God's grace, the love of God that gives you a biblical love of yourself owned by God and devoted to God. Now that's what he, that's what this text says. In other words, he says you will teach. When he says this, that's shorthand for the Ten Commandments. You shall, with my commandments, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. That would then lead you to love the image bearers of God. Now please, this is very important. 
in your Bible, when does God give the Ten Commandments to his people? When does he give the Ten Commandments to his people? He gives them at a place. What is the place? Mount Sinai. And if he gives them at Mount Sinai, that means they have already gone through something. What have they gone through? The Red Sea. They've been delivered. Which means that God has brought judgment upon the nation that he used to mature them, multiply them, and mobilize them because he told him, the nations that bless you, I'll bless. The nations that curse you, and what had Egypt done? Brought a genocidal policy upon them. And what does he do? He brings judgment upon them. And you will then see in the annals of uh, history the very judgment of God upon Egypt. And as he does that, he then brings judgment upon them to deliver his people out of bondage. And then through the Red Sea. And then to Mount Sinai. For what? Worship. Why does God deliver his people? To the praise of his glorious grace. Now, how shall we live as those who have been delivered from bondage? He gives them the commandments. He doesn't give them the commandments to do and earn his deliverance. He delivers them by grace. He gives them his law after. It doesn't, they don't have to keep the law to get delivered. That's an act of God's unmerited and unstoppable love called his grace. And then he takes them out. Now he gives them the law for its lawful use. We don't obey the law to be saved. We obey the law for the one who delivered us from the curse of the law, and that is Jesus. We're not under that law. We can use that law because he didn't come to abolish it. Our Redeemer who has delivered us out of the bondage of sin. But we're not under it because we don't see it with any power or us with the power with the law to save ourselves. But now that God has saved us, now we can use his law for its spiritual and good use. This is how. It has no power, but it has direction. Hear me and my commandments. And if you... Love me, you will keep my commandments. Why do you love him? You don't love him to keep his commandments so he will love you. You love him because he first loved you. Now when you love him, you keep his commandments because you love him. Not because you're seeking to save yourself, but you love him who saves you. So hear my law and make its lawful use as a director, as a tutor to lead you to me as to how you love me with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then he said, and these words, my commandments, my word that I give to you, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What do you have with me? A heart relationship. I can't wait in our studies on Sunday morning to get to the book of Romans where we get to that place where God reminds us the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. When God gives us the prophecy and the promises of the new covenant, what does he tell us? He says, I've got a people who are not a people. They shall become my people from all the nations. I will bring them from the lands into my land. I will sprinkle clean water upon them. There's the sign of the covenant. I will forgive their sins and make them righteous. There's the new record. 
and I will give them a new heart. The stony heart I'll cut out. And I will give them a new heart. And does anyone know what Jeremiah and Ezekiel tells us? That God writes on that new heart for those whom he has saved from the curse of the law? He writes his law upon their hearts. God's law lawfully embraced. Not with any notion of power to save us or we have the power with it to save ourselves. But those who have been saved by God's grace and the power of God now have a heart that the law is to be written upon. And so these shall be on your heart and praise God in Christ that has come to fulfillment. We have a new record And we have a new heart, and the new heart has the law of God written upon it. Now what should you do? You teach them diligently to your children. And you talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you take that word, you take my law, And you bind it as a sign on your hand. You bind it, I'm sorry, you bind it as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. My word marks your mind and your life. My word embraced by you becomes a sign to the world. That you are mine and I am yours. And then you write them on the doorpost of your house. You can almost hear the echo that's coming years later. As Joshua says, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. And it marks and it's on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That is everything around you, your abiding place in life is marked out by the grace of God demonstrated in your love and identification with the word of God. Now, what are some things that we are learning from this? Well, I'll just enumerate them for you. Here's the first thing. A saving relationship with God as your redeemer is a heart relationship. That is directly related to God's word. A saving relationship with God is a heart relationship that is directed and informed by God's word. Now, perhaps you're sitting there as you're attempting to write that out. And you don't stop there because you were in this morning's sermon. And you know that a saving relationship with God is a heart relationship. And that heart is directed by God's word, empowered by the spirit of God. And it is directed, that heart is directed by God's word through the pathway of saving grace to the heart. And what is the pathway of saving grace to the heart? The mind. The mind. Let me back it up this way. People who are saved have the marks and the evidences of salvation in their life. Your changed life doesn't save you. But a changed life, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has become. There's something happened. I mean, there's one deathbed in, there's one deathbed conversion in scripture, right? Hello, right? Who was he? Thief on the cross. Did he have a life change? Yes. Wasn't long. But there was a change. He went from a mocker to a worshiper. He went from an unbeliever to a believer. He went from condemning Christ to confessing Christ. He went from exalting himself to depending upon Christ alone. And the marks were there. That only happens with a changed heart. But a changed heart will evidence with a changed life. But it's not the changed life that saves you. The changed life is the evidence. Now how does the heart get changed by the power of God's grace? 
How does the heart tell the members of our body, our tongue, our hands, our heart, I mean, our tongue, our, our hands, our feet, what to do for God's glory? Because the heart must be instructed. And the pathway of saving grace that is evidenced in life is from the mind to the new heart that God gives. Guys, that's why I plead with you for Sunday morning and Sunday night. It's not simply to have a job. It's because you can't do what you don't know. And you can't know what you need to know without God's grace giving you a new heart that hungers for his word. And then a renewed mind that instructs the heart as to how the life is to be lived. I don't know any other way to say it. That's why we encourage a small group discipleship in your life. That's why we encourage not only fellowship and relationships in the Sunday school community, but teaching that's there. So that we continually are being instructed by the Word of God. And there is no biblical parenting without pointing your kids to Christ in a heart relationship. By informing their minds from the Word of God. I can't get any more basic in biblical parenting than that. It's not just informing them of the Word of God. It's informing them through the Word of God of their need of a heart relationship that's demonstrated in life. We're not looking to raise Pharisees. Nor are we looking to raise urchins. We are looking to raise, we are looking to raise warriors for Christ. We're looking to raise divine arrows in the hand of the divine warrior. And that means that they are to have a heart relationship. But hear this. You and I will not direct our children to a heart relationship with Christ directed by the word of God manifested in life until we have one. You can't parent your children where you haven't gone. You can't lead where you haven't been. That's why he makes this statement that this is to be all this. uh, You are to love the Lord with all your heart. And these words are to be on your heart. We're pointing our children to a saving relationship with God, which means a heart relationship by the grace of God that is directed through the word of God in the power of the spirit of God and we get to their heart through their mind. We cannot open their mind. We cannot open their heart but we can open the word of God to teach their heart through their mind. And then we are utterly dependent upon God's grace not only in our opening of the word but in their response to that word but praise God you start with a promise I will be a God to you and to your children after you number two the rest of these will go faster number two a relationship with Christ that's saving is one of a total commitment heart soul mind and might you don't come to Jesus on an a la carte menu You don't come to Jesus, well, I'll take you as Savior, but not as Lord. No, no, no. It is an all commitment to him who gave his all for you. And that's what we're teaching our children. We want you not to put Jesus in your back pocket to get through life, but that Jesus is Lord of your life. Even Jesus is simply your life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Number three, number three, we, sit, we teach the holiness of God. He is one. There are no facsimiles. There are, there are no replications. Oh, there are duplicitous facsimiles. And there are deceptive, um, deceptive declarations of gods in this world but there is only one here the lord our god is one there is none like him as he exists echad as father son and holy spirit number three i'm sorry number four 
you cannot faithfully teach or effectually uh, engage someone through teaching to Christ unless you have been united to Christ yourself. You've got to know the Lord your God. Now listen, I want to give a caveat to that. I've given this illustration before. Can I, you mind if I give it again? Um, I, was, um, I was raised in the Alliance, Christian Missionary Alliance. And I was, um, um, I had, you remember this morning I said, I love Lord's Day. We get to worship together. I anticipated every Sunday. That was not the way it was when I was growing up. But my dad could care less whether I wanted to come to church or not. We're going, son. That's just, that was it. And then when the youth group announced to my parents there was going to be a retreat or a camp or something, guess what? I'm going to that as well. I did everything I could. Would y'all like to know, um, I, like many other people, could find any, uh, any and every reason not to go to a Sunday night worship service. My number one avoidance of Sunday night was the one time a year, that, 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 that two times a year, my number one argument, can we not go to church tonight? They're showing Peter Pan tonight. Mary Martin as Peter Pan was my number one argument to miss Sunday night. And then if that one didn't work, I knew six months later was coming the Wizard of Oz on Sunday night. And I would appeal to Wizard of Oz. And, uh, oh, he kind of teaches us about God, Daddy. Can't we stay home and watch the Wizard of Oz? Well, that just didn't work either. And, uh, and youth group and going to a youth retreat. Oh, my goodness. Do not bring water torture into my life. I did not want to do that, particularly after I became 15 years of age. Well, then in Ashboro, I'll just forget this like it was yesterday. I can almost see it. My daddy says, hey, they're having an AYF at, uh, in Ashboro, and it's going to be a great time all day Saturday. Son, let me know how it goes. Daddy, I didn't think I would go. Um, you know, I've got, I've got a game Friday night, and Saturday, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm think I'm going to be tired. I'm, I might even have a cold or something. You never can uh, know what I need to avoid here. And uh, he said, no, you're going. And by the way, you're riding with, and he had already called a family whose um, kids were old enough to drive and I was riding with them. Well, we got there. I said, okay, I can get by this. We're coming home at four o'clock in the afternoon. I can make this. We drove up that morning. We got there and here were these college kids that had come from a Bible college and I had no idea it was evangelism training. See, I I alerted you. We're going to ask you to a banquet. We're going to buy your meal. So you can learn about how to evangelize. They did not tell us. They just took us there. And next thing I know, I'm out with two other high school students with this college guy who is teaching us how to share our faith. He said, I want you to do these five things when you share your faith. We're going door to door. I said, we're doing what? We're going door to door. Really? Yeah. So we went door to door. And by the way, that's when I found out that God answers prayers of unbelievers. I was an unbeliever. And we went up to the first door and I prayed, God, please let there not be anyone home, please. And and so guess what? Nobody was home. Answered prayer. And then the second home answered prayer. Third home. They were not only there. They said, oh, you fine young people. Why don't you come in? I've got something to give you to drink. So we went in and we got a Coca-Cola and there was a cookie and this couple was sitting there and the college guy began to share. And then he got to this point and he said, Ike, why don't you share what's what we're talking about? And I said, what? Why don't you share? Okay, I remembered the three points he hadn't said. I said all three of them. And he said, and now, Ike, you have a question for them, don't you? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't quite get the question right. My, the way I asked it was it. You wouldn't want to be a Christian, would you? And they said, I'll never forget. They said, yeah, we really want to be a Christian. I said, oh, and well, you can only go so far. I said, well, I'm going to let my friend share with you. And so he then prayed with them. They committed their life to Christ. So if anybody ever asks you, can the power of the gospel ever even overcome an unbeliever and people still get saved? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. But the basic rule of thumb is you can't take people where you've been. Therefore, as a parent, please, biblical parenting is made more effective in the life of your children as you are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Because you see, my daddy and mama didn't send me to go to something they didn't go to themselves. They took us. And we could see it in their lives. And that made an impact in our lives. Well, let me give you the next one, which I think is the fifth one. Uh, biblical, biblical education of children is God-ordered, is a God-ordered responsibility for parents. Educating your children, God has appointed you. You're responsible. This church is responsible to fulfill the Great Commission in your life, in your children's life, and you can make use of it. But you, as a parent, are responsible for the education of your children. You may choose a public school. You may choose a private school. You may make use of a Sunday school. You may make use of a Christian school. I've got my pastoral advice of what you ought to choose. But your responsibility is to educate your children biblically. That's what your responsibility is. You may, God doesn't tell you what venue to use and what to get to assist you in it as a parent. But it is your God-ordained responsibility as a parent. You've been appointed as a parent to raise, you can get help. You can choose venues. You can choose schools. You can make use of Sunday school. But it's your responsibility. Number six, biblical parenting is intentional. Notice what he says. You shall diligently, not just you shall teach, you shall diligently teach your children. It is intentional and systematic. It, it, you are thinking through it and planning out. You're the controller of the curriculum of education in the life of your child. You and I are responsible for that. Number seven, our education is life is to be life changing and life applicable. You are to teach them about sitting down, rising up, walking by the wayside. You're to teach them of the rhythms of life, the relationships of life. You are to teach them God's truth for life comprehensively. Rising up, walking by the wayside, sitting down uh, in every arena of life. What does it mean to live directed by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, through the grace of God, to live for the glory of God? Number eight, you are not only to do so intentionally, you are to do so thoughtfully. You are to do so thoughtfully. Finally, you are to do so with an environment in which God is honored with his word. His words on your hand, his words on your arm, his words on your mind, on your head, between your eyes. Now listen, in Orthodox Judaism, they reduce this into a legalistic presentation of putting a piece of a Bible in a box and strapping it on the head. That is not the purpose. That is not the purpose. That your mind is informed by the word. Your hands are directed by the word. The sign before the world is people who love the God of the word directed by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God to live to the glory of God. You create an environment. Now having said that, it doesn't hurt to put the Bible all over your house. I can take you throughout our house where Cindy needle-pointed this, where someone gave us this and it was hung, where something was placed here. So wherever you turn, God's word is reverberating. It's obvious. It's read. It's seen. It's everywhere. That's what God calls us to do, is to create the environment of the word of God in teaching in every area of, of in every sphere of life. Finally, number 10. So I thought I'd give you one good word. 
so that when we go home, you've got it. Peripatetic teaching. Harry, what do you mean peripatetic? You teach the way you walk and the way you talk. I remember, I remember one day, uh, not long after I was a believer, and, and uh, we had our first child, and thinking about how to teach them, and about a Christian school, and about this, and about that. And then I remember this big movement came up uh, under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, if I'm not mistaken, where there was this encouragement to take your daughter or your son to work with you once a day. And businesses were encouraged to make that as a viable option at your business, that people could bring their children at least one day a week or one day a month or something like that. And I remember looking at that and thinking through it. Well, I wonder how that fits with, uh, you know, um, economic theory and this and that and the other. And then I remember that's exactly what my daddy did. I remember when my daddy came and took me out of school and I went on a one-week trip with him as he was in minor league baseball. Stayed a whole week in Chattanooga. Went with him to all the games. Sat in the stadium. He introduced me. Met Pete Rose. Met Johnny Bench. Met all these baseball players. Probably the greatest thing is hearing my dad say, Hey, Pete, I want you to meet my son. My dad took me into life. I can remember Saturdays when dad during off season was selling something. He was always selling something to get from off season back into the season. And uh, he would take me with him and he's calling on a shop or he's calling on a person. And he would show me how to live life. I got to see him walk. I got to see him talk. I got to see him interact. I got to see the way he dealt with people. And then my mother would say, why don't y'all come up on Saturday to me and my sisters? And we would come up and spend time with her and watch the way she would do things. Listen, I think it's great when you go in the backyard and have catch with your kids and go with them and have them and go with them over to the playground and go with them to their little league games. And many of you are stressed out over doing that. Can I tell you something even more powerful? Just take them with you. I remember taking my kids on mission trips. I can remember taking my kids with me to a hospital visit. And I'd get there. I might as well not be there because the people I visited, they didn't want to talk to me. They just wanted to talk to my kids. I found out this is pretty good in ministry. But more than that, they learned that the daddy and mama's job wasn't something that took them from us. It was something they brought us with them. And you get to watch them. Because we learn not only by instruction, we learn more by imitation. Take them into life so they can see how the Word of God directs your life in responsibilities, in relationships, in ethics, in your vocation. It is amazing what that will do in multiplying. Well, I didn't think I'd get to the last text, and I didn't get to the last text. So I'm about to close in prayer, and we got one more Sunday in this. We're going to the Psalms for one more passage of Scripture on parenting next Sunday night. So would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the time we've been able to be together in this passage of Scripture. Please bless all of my brothers and sisters that are here diligently wanting to know your Word. I pray that you would take that which is faithful that's been taught and build it into their lives life, and may you not only bless them, but may they bless their children and their children's children according to your covenant promises in Jesus Christ. We believe you, and as we know, the promise is that when we believe on you, we are saved, us and our household, by your grace, through the means of grace, and really, Jesus, parenting is the joy of evangelizing and discipling our children for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, 
Or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.